to share with you just briefly this morning as we continue on in a passage of Scripture that we started a couple of weeks ago. What I thought was going to be a two-week series has turned into a four-week series, but that's because you guys greet for so long, there's never any time left for me to talk. So <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'm going to read two passages, verses 2 and 3, and then verse 15 through 27. Today, briefly, I just want to talk to you about the marks of a person who meets God out of the story of Naaman. The marks of a person who meets God. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 2 and 3. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Moving now to verse 15 as we look at the second half of this story. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him, and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, Naaman said, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman, and he urged Gehazi to accept them, and then tied them up, the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. And he gave to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servant and put them away in the house, and he sent the men away, and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous and had become as white as snow. Father, we recognize that your Holy Spirit is the one that leads and guides us into all truth. And so in these few moments, I pray that you would work in our hearts so that when we hear the word of God, that you can take it and we understand it and that then we with courage would apply it for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
couple of weeks ago, we started looking at this Old Testament passage about a man by the name of Naaman who is a fascinating character. Unbelievable, the story that he goes through. He was probably as unlikely a person as there is on the face of the world at his particular time to ever be one that would seek the God of heaven. His conversion is as startling, I made mention of this, it's as, it's as startling as Saul of Tarsus conversion experience was in the New Testament. Naaman's conversion experience is just that startling. Interesting enough, we, we already know that Naaman was sophisticated and educated and highly qualified, very rich, was one that gave orders, was second in command of a whole nation. And interesting enough, as you look at his life, you will recognize that before he went to Israel, there was not one single person in his severe of influence that ever believed that the God of Israel was real. There was nobody in his sphere that would have encouraged him to do what he did. In other words, it's not unlike a typical 21st century person who lives in our world today who is sophisticated and intelligent and, and lives for their own self and probably doesn't have anybody in their circle of friends that would believe that there's any relevance to the God that we serve today. We live in that kind of world today. And yet as Naaman goes and he seeks the God of Israel, he seeks the God of the Bible, not only is he healed, he's converted. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at what caused him to be a seeker. He, he had everything that you could want. And I said that you can develop a designer life, but something will ruin it. No matter what you design for yourself, something will ruin it. And at the end of the list of all of his accomplishments, we see in the first part of the, the, the verses, it says, but he had leprosy. He literally is falling apart. As he goes to the God of Israel, he does so. And then in his conversion experience, we begin to recognize that what it required of him was to be humiliated, to be humbled. He had to come to the recognition that he was a nobody, and that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, provides the same way for all of us to come and meet him. And that there was nothing particularly special about him. And as he recognized that, and as he obeyed it, even though he was furious about the way this all went down, he encountered God in a powerful way. I saw a Facebook post a couple of weeks ago about a young lady that I have known since she was a young girl. And she had made a decision in the last year or so to walk away from her faith because it, came, it became inconvenient to the way that she had wanted to live her life. And her post said that what I have learned over this last year in making this decision is this. Everything that I need to make it in life, everything that I need to be happy is found inside of me. The, the deeper she digs into herself, the more sufficiency she discovers and she is declaring, I am my own answer. And as I read that, my heart was grieved. Because the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. That the problems are not out there and the solution in here. Your biggest problems are in here. And the only solution that we have is to leave the sufficiency of ourself and begin to look from a heart which is disordered with sin and evil and find a solution by encountering a God who forgives and has great grace if we will come and look for him. It is his intervention that changes everything. And here's what you need to know. Unless you are able to make that switch in your own heart and mind, 
and go from believing that your problems are out there and that the answer is in here and come to the place where you recognize that your biggest, your biggest problems are in your own heart and that the only answer is found in Christ, then you can't become a Christian. You can't meet God until you embrace that fact. And so as we begin to look at this, we recognize that what Naaman had to find out is that he had to be humbled and humiliated and he had to step into the waters of a muddy Jordan River because he recognized that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all have to come to Christ the same way. There is no way that you earn it or merit it. And as a part of that, he had to rethink the way that he thought. As he came out of the waters and as he's sitting there in his chariot and he's going back and I'm sure he's examining his skin and it says that it's like that of a small boy. That makes interesting images. I wonder if he had to regrow facial hair. I just, you know, those are the things that I think about. As he's looking at that, something took place in the way that he thinks. He recognized that I wasn't just healed but in his mind, he began to recognize, I've never experienced a God like this before. He had been in a pluralistic society, which meant it would have been easy for him to go back to Elisha and say, listen, the God of Israel is a better healer than the God of Syria. The God of Israel is better at doing this, or it seems way more real than the God of Syria. And he could easily have just added the God of Israel to his godless. But something happened in that encounter in the water which changed the way that he thought. And that is the first mark of somebody who has encountered God. What are the marks of somebody who's encountered God? Number one, he has a change in his thinking. It said, then Naaman, with all of his descendants, in verse 15, went back to the man of God. In other words, this is, after it's happened, he came back to Elisha, and he stood before him, and he said this, I know, this is a statement of belief. This is a statement of something has changed in his mind. I know that there is no other God in all of the world except in Israel. If he had gone back and just said, I know your God's more powerful, it would not have changed his world it would not have changed his soul, but something happened in the way that he thought. And so he comes back and he says, there's been a change in the way that I think. He's thinking, this isn't just a miracle. This is about a new way of life. This is about a, a new way of, of human nature being touched by God. This changes everything. And he said, I know that there is only one God in all of the world and I have encountered him. And as a result of that, it changes everything. I'm certain that many of you have been keeping up with some of the things that are taking place at Asbury College and is now beginning to spread to some other universities. And I've, I've seen some things both in favor and people that are critical of it. Let me just tell you something. I'm wide open for a new awakening, however God wants to accomplish that. We don't have the right to stand here and be critical. If God is saving souls and he's transforming lives, then let's pray that it continues. Sometimes we can get so critical of details that we lose fact that this may be what we've been praying for as a nation. And I'm not surprised that it's starting on college campuses. But as we begin to do that, one of the things that happens to us is it changes the way that we think. Because your heart has to change in order for you to change your trusts. You see, it tells us in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. What you trust determines your decisions. What you trust in determines your behavior. 
And something had happened in Naaman's life when he came out of that water, which changed what he trusted in. From everything that he had known all of his life to in an instant, I've changed my mind about God. I've changed my mind about who God is. And now I know him. When you are wanting to be converted, when you intersect God's grace, the first thing that has to happen is you change your mind about what you trust in. And from that, then he moves into the air. Now, we as Pentecostals are often accused by, by those that are non-Pentecostals that our relationship with God is all emotional. I want you to know something. That emotion is a part of who we are and certainly will be a part of it. But that doesn't take place till you've changed who you trust. Until you've thought about it and you begin to apply the truth of the word and you begin to see how God makes himself real. And so you can't have a change of heart unless you change what you are trusting. And that means thinking and embracing new truth and change the way you trust to something that it's not just mystical or emotional, but it changes your heart. The first encounter with God changed his heart. The second mark of somebody who has encountered God, he has a new attitude toward his possessions. In verse 15, it says that he came to Elisha and he says, please accept a gift from your servant. This is important. I want you to understand the order of the way that this hit because it will begin to tell you a little bit about how his mind has changed. We know that he had come with chariots. In fact, we believe that some of those chariots strictly were used just to carry treasure chests on them and, and clothes on them. And so he comes with this entourage, and it's, it's, it's hard for us to determine how much that is in today's currency, but I did not find a single commentator that, that would dispute the fact that Naaman was likely, in today's terms, a billionaire. A billionaire. He came with more money and more wealth than existed in the entire country of Israel at the time in that entourage. And Naaman came to Israel and he was ready to part with all of it to get his cure. And now he's cured and he got it for free. Didn't cost him a thing. A grace sale. And now after coming out of the water, receiving everything that he was willing to part with millions of dollars for without having to pay a penny, but because his mind had changed and his heart had changed, his attitude changed. And now he comes back and he says to Elisha, please accept the gift. Why would he want to get rid of his money now when he'd already got what he came for for free? And the answer is this. He's no longer giving money to get anything. He's giving generously because of the grace that he's received. He's giving generously because of the gratitude of what has happened in his life. And one of the marks of a person who has experienced the grace of God is that there will always be a radical change in your generosity. Always. And you know why? Frankly, let's, let's be honest about our money for a little bit. It's, it's not just money. Frankly, it is self-esteem currency. Because your money determines how you feel about yourself. Your money determines whether or not you feel accomplished or whether you feel that you've made it in life. For so many people, their money is their security. Their money is their self-worth. And, and they look at that and what they've accumulated and they feel worthy of something because of it. And that is why we live in a world that is so difficult for people to live radically generous, to give away what you have. 
because we recognize that if I give it away, it may very well change the standard by which I live if I'm radically generous. But when you have encountered God, one of the marks that takes place in your life is that you begin to recognize that money no longer holds for you your self-worth. You see, the grace of God has given you a new self-worth. You now recognize that the God of the universe knows your name and has placed within you an inherent value because of his creation of you and the way that he works with you. And so your security changes, your values change, and now your money is just money. It's just money. And now the gift that God has given to you to steward no longer controls your identity because after being converted, God's grace allows you to be much more generous because your whole identity is no longer based on what I've got, but whose I am. And then we notice that beyond just the generosity of his money, there's a change in the way he thinks about himself because he goes from saying, please accept this gift. He also uses a new terminology in describing himself. He says, from your servant. Now, you can look at this and say, well, that was just kind of perfunctory niceness that took place, but I want you to understand, I don't believe that there's a single word in the word of God that's not there for us to be taught something from. And so this demonstrates to me that there's been a real change in the way that Naaman looks at himself. Now, you go back and you recognize that he's probably second in command in his nation. He is the top of the top of the top of the food chart as it relates to authority in, in Syria. Everybody would do what he says. And for him to suddenly come back after this encounter with God, after his healing, after his conversion, and look at Elisha, whom he was angry with at the beginning for not even coming out to meet him, and then say to him, listen, please accept this gift from your servant, indicates to me that he recognizes that there's a fundamental difference in the way that he now views himself. The central operating principle of Satan is my, your life for mine. Your life to benefit and increase mine. The, simple, the central operating principle of Jesus is my life for yours. My life to benefit and increase yours. My life poured out for you. And every day in the smallest interactions that we may have, you are either making a choice that puts you on the Jesus path or you're making a choice that puts you on the path of Satan. And don't forget, Satan is always angry and he's always unhappy, and Jesus is always joyful. Whose path would you like to be on? But an encounter with God, one of the marks of that in our life is that we then choose to be on the Jesus path, and you realize that everything you have in your life comes as a gift of his grace, and suddenly you feel rich, regardless of what you may or may not have. Because the God of the universe has changed everything and suddenly you serve others jo joyfully. Suddenly you don't look at people as who can I get something from and who can I command, but it's Lord, how can I serve? Give me a servant's heart. And once you know that everything has been assured in your future because of your relationship with Jesus, you start to look at people and you say, my life for yours. I can't wait to pour my life for your life. So the marks of someone who's met God are a change in our thinking, a new attitude toward possessions and service. And the last one, God becomes central in your life. Now, 
I will admit to you that this last section that I'm going to read to you today is, is a little puzzling and it takes a little decoding, but it is fun. And so in verses 17 through 19, it says this. This is Naaman now. He's talking to Elisha and he goes, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. In other words, I want to fill up bags of dirt from Israel so that the mules that I have, I'm going to be taking home like four bags of Israel dirt. For your servant will never again make a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. I just have to stop here because this cracks me up. How many of you have ever asked forgiveness before you actually sinned? <laughs> any of you? There's a few, some of you, and I'm looking around to see who else. Before. I love this about Naaman. Naaman goes, okay, prophet, um, I've got this issue coming up in my life, and can you just forgive me before I ever get to it? In fact, here's how I'm going to work that out. And so he goes on to say, when my master enters the temple of Ramon, to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha's sitting there going, go in peace. And he does. And as you look at that, you're going, what is going on? Now it is both fascinating and it's brilliant. Because first, look what Naaman is not doing. Naaman is not saying, oh, Elisha, after being in the Jordan River and coming out with the, the skin of a new boy and feeling brand new after encountering God, I don't want to go back to Syria. Please let me stay here among the people that serve this God. Don't, don't make me go back into that, that terrible place where I've got, please just let me stay. He didn't say that. Naaman is going to go right back into his life. And his life evidently includes the fact that he the only term I can use, he must have been like the vice president or the prime minister. Um, because the temple of Ramon was the central cultist temple for the country. It was the deification of their culture. It must have been the place where state events took place. And so on a regular basis, the king would be going to a state event and the prime minister would be walking along with him and so that when the king went in, it was customary for him to bow down to whatever the god was there of Ramon in this temple. And the prime minister indicates that he kneels there beside him in this. And so Naaman is thinking through all of the what ifs in his mind about when I go home, this is gonna be highly uncomfortable for me. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to take a bunch of dirt from Israel. I'm going to put it in bags because that's holy ground. And then I'm going to load my pockets up with this dirt during these state events. And when we get into the temple, I'm going to just unload my pockets. I'm going to throw the dirt on the ground. And I will kneel on that dirt while the king kneels before the God. And, and in doing that, I will prove to everybody that I'm not bowing to Ramon. I've come with the holy ground of Israel and my life belongs to God. And he gets through all of that and, and he said, listen, I'm, I'm gonna go back to my job. I'm gonna go back. I'm not withdrawing. I'm, I, I just, I want everybody to know that I'm worshiping the God of Israel. Now, the commentators state that everybody would recognize this from him, that this was quite a statement that he would take out the dirt and put it on the ground and that he would kneel on that, indicating that I am not kneeling to that God, I have a different God, the God of Israel. And so he's saying, I'm gonna go back into my life and I'm gonna have a distinct testimony that although I love my country, I do not 
worship my country. There's something to be said in that for us. How we will live with Christ being central. Naaman was stating, I want everybody to know every time I kneel in the State Department of Rimon, that temple, that I am only worshiping God. And he says to Elisha, I'm trying to find a balance here between my life and my newfound faith. Does that work? And Elisha's going, that'll work. That, that works. I, I think that that's fantastic. You see what Naaman has done. He did not say, I'm not going, I'm not going back to my life. And he didn't say, I'm, I want to get out of my life. He said, I'm going back to my life, but I'm going to have God at the center of my life. And everybody is going to recognize that. I'm not going to go back and be belligerent and harass people because I have found the true God and they have not. Nor am I going to go back. It would have been really easy for him to say, listen, Elisha, I'm going to go back and, and here's the thing. You know, I believe that a relationship with God is a private thing. So, I'm, you know, just keep this between myself, you and me and God. And, and I'll go back and I'm going to live my life and deep down inside everybody, you know, my heart, my, my, you know, you know my heart. He didn't say that. He didn't want to privatize it. He said, I'm going to live in such a way that everybody is going to know, even though I'm in my life, that God is the center of my life. Years ago, when I was serving in the district office, one of my responsibilities was the Chi Alpha director of, of our state, which meant that we had college campuses that have Chi Alpha groups that are there. And, and I remember being on a retreat with the kids from Cornell one year. And I had some conversations with them, and it was fascinating, the number of students that were being saved on the campus. And I discovered that there was like one or two different attitudes that begin to emerge. The first attitude was, uh, after getting saved, some of these kids went back home and became very belligerent and very uh, almost egotistical about the fact that they're telling everybody, I now have met Jesus. You've got to meet Jesus. Like, you're not as good as me until you meet him, you know, and, and kind of took that approach to everybody. But th there was another side of that. There were students that I was asking, so now that you've met Christ here, what is it like for you? Have you found a church when you got back home? And they're going, no, no, no. No, when I go home, I, do you know what it'd be like for me to get up on a Sunday morning and get dressed and go, my family would look at me and say, what is wrong with you? And I don't want that. And they privatized everything. To there are places where I will live my testimony for God and other places where I will not. And Naaman wanted to be sure that he would not do that. Worship team, if you please come. So right away, we see that in this encounter with God that changes the central parts of your life, Naaman recognized that when you encounter God, two things take place with you. One of them is that you take on the, the qualities of God, which is humility. I'm not going to be arrogant, and I'm not going to be belligerent. But the other side of that is that the Holy Spirit gives us great courage to I'm going to live my life, but I'm going to live with Christ in the center of my life. Regardless of the circumstances of how difficult it may be around me, I'm going to pull out that holy ground, so to speak, in the middle of a world that may not understand him, and I will bow to the one true God, and people will know that I have encountered God. And when you mix humility and courage, you get balance. And you say, I'm a Christian. I'm going to identify myself as a Christian in every aspect of my life, and at the same time, I'm not going to be obnoxious and arrogant about it. I'm going to go back to my life, and I'm going to have God in the center of my life. And this is what we learn from Naaman in his encounter with God. Because Naaman indicates to us that when you encounter God, you cannot keep it private. 
You cannot keep your testimony private because God wants the center of everything in your life to be him. And so these are the marks of people who have met God.